Tonight I was listening to Paolo Manny's reading of Wanderlust by Rebecca Solnit, and it reminded me that I had picked up The Mother of All Questions by her, based on listening to his reading of her, because I had been... I had been suggested, or it had been suggested to me by a good friend to read more of her, and I had only read her one book, um, Men Explain Things to Me, long ago. And so I took her advice and, and was inspired by Paul Manny's reading of that particular author. Tonight I'm going to read one part of the four-part piece in that book of, it's called The Mother of All Questions by Rebecca Solnit, but I'm going to read um, in the chapter called A Short History of Silence. There are four parts. I'm going to read the first part tonight. I'm going to make an attempt. I get messed up at night sometimes, but we'll try it. A short history of silence. What I most regretted were my silences, and there are so many silences to be broken. That's a quote by Audre Lorde. The ocean around the archipelago. Silence is golden, or so I was told when I was young. Later, everything changed. Silence equals death, the queer activists fighting the neglect and repression around AIDS shouted in the streets. Silence is the ocean of the unsaid, the unspeakable, the repressed, the erased, the unheard. It surrounds the scattered islands made up of those allowed to speak and of what can be said and who listens. Silence occurs in many ways for many reasons. Each of us has his or her own sea of unspoken words. English is full of overlapping words, but the purposes of this essay regard silence as what is imposed and quiet as what is sought. The tranquility of a quiet place, of quieting one's own mind, of a retreat from words and bustle, is acoustically the same as the silence of intimidation or repression, but psychically and politically something entirely different. What is unsaid because serenity and introspection are sought is as different from what is not said because the threats are high or the barriers are great as swimming is from drowning. Quiet is to noise as silence is to communication. The quiet of the listener makes room for the speech of others like the quiet of the reader taking in words on the page, like the white of the paper 
taking ink. We are volcanoes, Ursula K. Le Guin once remarked, when we women offer our experience as our truth, as human truth, all the maps change. There are new mountains. The new voices that are undersea volcanoes erupt in open water and new islands are born. It's a furious business and a startling one. The world changes. Silence is what allows people to suffer without recourse, what allows hypocrisies and lies to grow and flourish, crimes to go unpunished. If our voices are essential aspects of our humanity, to be rendered voiceless is to be dehumanized or excluded from one's humanity. And the history of silence is central to women's history. Words bring us together and silence separates us, leaves us bereft of the help or solidity, sorry. Let me start that sentence again. Words bring us together and silence separates us leaves us bereft of the help or solidarity or just communion that speech can solicit or elicit. Some species of trees spread root systems underground that interconnect the individual trunks and weave the individual trees into a more stable whole that can't so easily be blown down in the wind. Stories and conversations are like those roots. For a century, the human response to stress and danger has been defined as fight or flight. A 2000 UCLA study by several psychologists noted that this research was based largely on studies of male rats and male human beings. But studying women led them to a third, often deployed option. Gather for solidarity, support, advice. They noted that behaviorally females' responses are marked by a pattern of tend and befriend. Tending involves nurturant, nurturant activities designed to protect the self and offspring that promote safety and reduce distress. Befriending is the creation and maintenance of social networks that may aid in this process. Much of this is done through speech, through telling of one's plight, through being heard, through hearing compassion and understanding in the response of the people you tend to, whom you befriend. Not only women do this, but perhaps women do this more routinely. It's how I cope, or how my community helps me cope, now that I have one. Being unable to tell your story is a living death, 
and sometimes a literal one. If no one listens when you say your ex-husband is trying to kill you, if no one believes you when you say you are in pain, if no one hears you when you say help, if you don't dare say help, if you have been trained not to bother people by saying help, if you are considered to be out of line when you speak up in a meeting, are not admitted into an institution of power, are subject to irrelevant criticism whose subtext is that women should not be here or heard. Stories save your life, and stories are your life. We are our stories stories that can be both prison and the crowbar to break open the door of that prison. We make stories to save ourselves or to trap ourselves or others, stories that lift us up or smash us against the stone wall of our own limits and fears. Liberation is always in part a storytelling process. Breaking stories, breaking silences, making new stories. A free person tells her own story. A valued person lives in a society in which her story has a place. Violence against women is often against our voices and our stories. It is a refusal of our voices and of what a voice means, the right to self-determination, to participation, to consent or descent, to live and participate, to interpret and narrate. A husband hits his wife to silence her. A date rapist or acquaintance rapist refuses to let the no of his victim mean what it should, that she alone has jurisdiction over her body. Rape culture asserts that women's testimony is worthless, untrustworthy. Anti-abortion activists also seek to silence the self-determination of women. A murderer silences forever. These are assertions that the victim has no rights, no value, is not, is not an equal. These silences, silencings, sorry, these silencings take place in smaller ways. The people harassed and badgered into silence online, talked over and cut out in conversation, belittled, humiliated, dismissed. Having a voice is crucial. It's not all there is to human rights, but it's central to them. And so you can consider the history of women's rights and lack of tight lack of rights as a history of silence and break, and breaking silence. Speech, words, voice sometimes change things in themselves when they bring about inclusion, recognition, the rehumanization sorry, the rehumanization that undoes dehumanization. Sometimes they are only the preconditions to changing rules, laws, regimes to bring about justice and liberty. 
Sometimes just being able to speak, to be heard, to be believed are crucial parts of membership in a family, a community, a society. Sometimes our voices break those things apart. Sometimes those things are prisons. And then when those and then when words break through unspeakability, what was tolerated by a society sometimes becomes intolerable. Those not impacted can fail to see or fail the impact of segregation or police brutality or domestic violence. Stories bring home the trouble and make it unavoidable. By voice, I don't mean only literal voice, the sound produced by the vocal cords in the ears of others, but the ability to speak up, to participate, to experience oneself and be experienced as a free person with rights. This includes the right not to speak, whether it's the right against being tortured to confess, as political prisoners are, or not to be expected to serve as strangers who approach you, as some men do to young women, demanding attention and flattery and punishing their absence. The idea of voice expanded to the idea of agency includes wide realms of power and powerlessness. Who has been unheard? The sea is vast and the surface of the ocean is unmappable. We know who has mostly been heard on official subjects who's who held office, attended university, commanded armies, served as judges and juries, wrote books and ran empires over the past several centuries. We know how it has changed somewhat, thanks to the countless revolutions of the 20th century and after, against colonialism, against racism, against misogyny, against the innumerable, enforced silences, homophobia imposed, and so much more. We know that in the United States, class was leveled out to become, sorry, we know that in the United States, class was leveled out to some extent in the 20th century and then reinforced toward the end through income inequality and the withering away of social mobility and the rise of a new extreme elite, poverty silences. Who has been heard we know? Let's see, let me go back to that. Who has been heard we know? They are the well-mapped islands. The rest are the unmappable sea of unheard unrecorded humanity. Many over the centuries were heard and loved, and their words disappeared in the air as soon as they were spoken, but took root in minds, contributed to the culture like something compo composting into rich earth. New things grew from these words. New things grew from those words. 
Many others were silenced, excluded, ignored. The earth is seven-tenths water, but the ratio of silence to voice is far greater. If libraries hold all the stories that have been told, there are ghost libraries of all the stories that have not. The ghosts outnumber the books by some unimaginably vast sum. Even those who have been audible have often carried, sorry, even those who have been audible have often earned the privilege through strategic silences or the inability to hear certain voices, including their own. The struggle of liberation has been in part to create the conditions for for the formerly silenced to speak and be heard. An Englishwoman tells me that Britain has a growing prison population of old men because countless victims, whom no one was willing to hear before, are now telling of sexual abuse. The most notorious British case is of BBC entertainer Jimmy Saville. who was knighted and lauded and made into a celebrity. He died before more than 450 people charged him with sexual abuse, mostly young women, but also younger boys and adult women. 450 people who were not heard, who perhaps did not think that they had the right to speak out or even to object or to be believed, or rather knew that they lacked those rights, that they were the voiceless. John Linden, also known as Johnny Rotten of the Sex Pistols, said to BBC of Seville in 1978, I bet he's into all kinds of seediness that we all know about, but are not allowed to talk about. I know some rumors. I bet none of this will be allowed out. Sorry, I think I said his name was Lyndon. It's Lydon, sorry. Lydon's words weren't weren't allowed out until 2013 when the unedited interview was released. Around that time, other stories surfaced of pedophile rings involving prominent British politicians. Many of the crimes had happened long before. Some reportedly resulted in the deaths of child victims. Scandals involving public figures provide national and international versions of what otherwise are of what are otherwise often small local dramas about whose story will prevail. They are often how the winds of opinion change as they prompt conversations. Sometimes they lay the groundwork for others to come forward to speak of other damage and other perpetrators. Lately, this has evolved into a process using social media to create collective tribunals, mass testimony, and mutual support that could be seen as a version of the tend and befriend behavior outlined above. Silence is what allowed predators to rampage through the decades unchecked. It's as though the voices of these prominent public men 
devoured the voices of others into nothingness, a narrative cannibalism. They rendered them voiceless to refuse and afflicted with un unbelievable stories. Unbelievable means those with power did not want to know, to hear, to believe, did not want them to have voices. People died from being unheard. Then something changed. The same story could be told of innumerable North American figures of whom the famous recent examples are Fox News CEO Roger Ailes, charged by several women with workplace sexual harassment and persecution, exploitation, blackmail, psychological abuse over half a century. Bill Cosby and his serial drug-aided rapes over the same time span. And Gian Gomeshi in Canada, charged by several women with brutal assaults. Powerful figures who knew their voices and credibility could drown out those they assaulted until something broke, until silence was broken, until an ocean of stories roared forth and washed away their impunity. Even when the evidence was overwhelming, some still hurled abuse and threats at the victims and found ways to deny the merits of their stories. Because to believe them would mean questioning foundational assumptions. It would be uncomfortable, and many speak of comfort as a right, even when, especially when, that comfort is built upon the suffering and silencing of others. If the right to speak, if having credibility, if being heard is a kind of wealth, that wealth is now being redistributed. There has long been an elite with audibility and credibility, an underclass of the voiceless. As the wealth is redistributed, the, stun the stunned incomprehension of the elites erupts over and over again, a fury and disbelief that this woman or child dared to speak up, that people deign to believe her, that her voice counts for something, that her truth may end a powerful man's reign. These voices heard up in power relations a hotel cleaning woman launched the beginning of the end of International Monetary Fund chief and serial assailant Dominique Strauss-Kahn's career. Women have ended the careers of stars in many fields, or rather those stars have destroyed themselves by acts they engaged in with the belief that they had the impunity that comes with their victims' powerlessness. Many had impunity for many years, some for lifetimes. Many now have found they no longer do. Who is heard and who is not defines the status quo. Those who embody it, often at the cost of extraordinary silences with themselves, move to the center those who embody what is not heard or what violates those who rise on silence are cast out. By redefining whose voice is valued 
we redefine our society and its values. My subject in this book is that subspecies of silence and silencing specific to women, if anything, can be specific to more than half of humanity. If to have a, to if to have a voice to be allowed to speak, to be heard and believed is essential to be to being an insider or a person of power, a human being with full membership, then it's important to recognize that silence is the universal condition of oppression. And there are many kinds of silence and of the silenced. The category women is a long boulevard that intersects with many other avenues, including class, race, poverty, and wealth. Traveling this boulevard means crossing others, and it never means that the city of silence has only one street or one route through it that matters. It is now useful to question the categories of male and female, but it's also useful to remember the that misogyny is based on a devout belief in the reality of those categories, in parentheses, or is an attempt to reinforce them by demonstrating the proper role of each gender. Genocide is a great silencing, and so is slavery. And it was in opposition to slavery that American feminism arose, born at the intersection. Elizabeth Cady Stanton went to the World's Anti-Slavery Convention in London in 1840, one of many abolitionists who traveled to participate, only to find that they could not be seated and could not speak. Even people who considered themselves champions of the oppressed could not see that could not see what was oppressive about an order so old it was perceived as natural. A controversy arose. Stanton wrote in her autobiography of the remarkable women gathered there and who were all compelled to listen in silence to the masculine platitudes on women's sphere. She went home furious, and that fury at being silenced and shut out and the insight that, in, that resulted gave rise to the first women's rights movement. Along with gaining voting rights and access to schools and education, a significant part of the civil rights struggle was and is to include people of color on juries both to give them the right of full participation and to give people on trial the right to be heard by people who might have some understanding of who they are and what they came from, a jury of their peers as guaranteed in the Constitution. The racial makeup of juries was still being contested in the Supreme Court in 2016. The struggles around gender are analogous in 1927, seven years after women gained the vote nationally, only 19 states allowed women to serve on juries, and even in 1961, the Supreme Court upheld Florida's automatic exemption of women jurors. 
I'm going to go back here because there was a little note, footnote, when it said seven years after women gained the vote nationally. And what the note says is, it's sometimes said that black women didn't get the vote until the civil rights era, which is true for both black women and black men in, the, in much of the South, but not of the nation as a whole. Black women in Chicago were organizing vote blocks before 1920 because Illinois women won the vote in 1913. Four western states, Wyoming, Utah, Colorado, and Idaho, gave women the vote in the 19th century. Asian and Native women were disenfranchised in other ways well into the 20th century, and some white women in the suffrage movement denigrated and excluded black women. After the Civil War, founding feminist Elizabeth Cady Stanton did not want to support the right of black men to vote as an issue separate from the right of women to vote, which meant she and a sector of women's movement did not support this struggle or even actively oppose it. Racist voter disenfranchisement became a major issue again in the 21st century. So back to the part here where we're talking about um, so they were talking about they gained the right to vote nationally and then we had that note only 19 states allowed women to serve on juries and even in 1961 the Supreme Court upheld Florida's automatic exemption of women jurors which means that many, many trials for gender violence and discrimination were heard by all male juries in courtrooms with male lawyers presided over by male judges, a setup in which a woman victim's voice was extraordinarily likely to be discredited and silenced unless she was testifying against someone in another silenced group. White women were sometimes used by white men as weapons against black men. And that is, and that in this, oh, sorry, let me see. And that in this, as in so many other ways, women did not have a voice in their society. Silence was the historic condition of women, denied education and a role in public life positions as judges, priests, or almost any other speaking role, with rare exceptions. Women were silent in the houses of the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians, St. Paul ordered, quote, Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak. End quote. Elsewhere, the New Testament declares, quote, But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. End quote. No woman became a priest in the Anglican Church in the United States until 1944, none in the Church of England until 1994. The first women rabbi in the United States was ordained in 1972. No woman has been ordained in the Catholic Church. Women were silent in the courts. 
No woman, no woman served on the U.S. Supreme Court until 1981, and women currently only hold a third of the seats, the most ever. I don't know why that doesn't sound right. Let me go back, sorry. No, women, no woman served on the U.S. Supreme Court until 1981, and women currently only hold a third of the seats. The most ever. Okay, only. At Harvard Law School, where so many of the lords of the earth were groomed, the first petition for a women's admittance was in 1871, and the first woman entered in 1950. Women were excluded from undergraduate enrollment in many of the Ivy League universities where global power alliances are formed. The first women the first woman undergraduate at Yale entered in 1969. The reception women received there was so hostile that in 1977, the nation's first Title IX lawsuit for campus sexual harassment and rape by professors, Alexander versus Yale, was filed. It set a precedent requiring campuses across the country to address these abuses as discrimination, but not enough changed. 39 years later, in the summer of 2016, 169 philosophers signed a letter decrying a 27-year series of alleged sexual harassment incidences. Incidents by Yale professor Thomas Pogue, or Pogue, yeah, Pogue, whose specialty is the field of ethics. Jeez. New recognitions required new language, and feminism coined a plethora of words to describe the individual experiences that the conversations of the 60s and 70s were beginning to flush out of, the, of hiding. Susan Brown Miller coined the term date rape in 1975, an aside here. I remember doing a report about this. Not so much date rape, but about feminism. And 75 is the year I graduated from high school, so I remember reading. She had this book out. I'm not sure now the title. Maybe she'll mention it here. I don't know. But anyway, Susan Brown Miller was... Um, it was... Yeah, she was the one of the women that was the go-to about some of these issues. The term sexual harassment was perhaps coined in 1974 by Mary Rowe to describe misconduct at MIT or by a group of women addressing the same problem at Cornell in 1975. The legendary lawyer Catherine McKinnon took the concept forward with her 1979 book, Sexual Harassment of Working Women. The term and the concepts behind it would only become well known to the public with the Clarence Thomas Anita Hill hearings in 1991. In 1993, Oklahoma and North Carolina became the last states to make raping one's spouse a crime. Lack of jurisdiction over one's own body is a form of silencing, a way of making what one says have no value, and words without value 
are worse than silence. One can be punished for them. So that is the first part of this chapter, and there's four parts. The next part, two, is called Every Man in Every Man an Island, Male Silence. So she's not going to talk just about women. Of course, that's what she said in the beginning of this book. So I'll read that and put that again. Maybe I'll... I don't know how I'll do it, but I'll read the second section, but not tonight. 